So it was a couple of years ago that uh, we have been discerning together what uh, to do for a sermon series, and uh, the Lord had very much indicated a look at the early church, and we did so by going through the book of Acts. It got to the end of Acts and still wasn't sure where to go after that and thought, maybe we're just not done talking about the early church, so let's go even earlier. (laughs) And we'll go to the Old Testament church of the nation of Israel. Now, if you're not yet convinced that the church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel, that we should view the Israelites as the Old Testament church, strap in for the next few months as we listen to the narratives in the book of Numbers, verses 11 through 25. We've done the setup, the, uh, the first 10 chapters that have been sort of this establishing of some things. But if you ever thought that the Old Testament was irrelevant to life together, we're about to see in the next 15 chapters that it may just be too relevant for comfort. But it's not really just about relevancy. I mean, we, we like relevancy. Uh, we'll talk about how we like certain songs because we really relate to them. Or we like certain stories or speakers because we can relate to them. In fact, next to something being entertaining, often the next highest priority is that it is relevant. We especially want to be entertained by things that are relevant, which is why it's so easy to be deceived. If you make it relevant, we'll go along with it, even when it leads us to falsehood. If something is made entertaining, we'll go along with it, even if it leads us to destruction. God's word offers so much more. We begin with Numbers chapter 11, and before we read it, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, of course you are relevant. You created all things of nothing. You are the one true God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. The ancient words as the choir sang about them, are still words that are true today. And so we pray that you would help us to hear the ancient words, to hear them as relevant, to even be entertained by that which is entertaining, but to do more than what the world can offer, to do what only you can offer. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to come right now and to do the work of the Holy Spirit of bearing witness to the reading and preaching of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher. We know that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Now, Numbers chapter 11 has 35 verses to it. And I occurred to me that reading the whole chapter in one shot is a lot, and it's hard to hear because of our short attention spans. Wait, what did you say? Sorry, I got distracted for a minute there. But this really is one narrative, sort of complete in so many ways, and there's so much good stuff that's in here. In fact, we're not going to have nearly enough time to cover it this morning, Um, but it's really one of those narratives that's easy to track with. And what my hope is, is that you will take this and you will read it again and again throughout this week. Uh, It's especially a great narrative um, that moms and dads can take home and to do during family worship and family devotion times, because it's, it really is easy to track with, easy to understand. Uh, Kids will enjoy it um, and so much to be able to glean from it. So take this home with you. And my hope today is to simply give you some primers and some things to talk about and, uh, and to get 
your, uh, your wheels turning, but to take this home this week and to really make it yours. And so listen to the whole narrative of Numbers chapter 11, and then we'll break it down. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food and and again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and they ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you, that you put the burden of all of these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, 10 or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you'll loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot. And you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out, told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with them. And he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them. They prophesied in the camp. 
A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Now a wind went out from the Lord, drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. And they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was called Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kibroth Hatava, the people traveled to Hazaroth and stayed there. There are at least six parts to this passage and probably six or more sermons that could be preached on this, but we're going to do a very truncated version uh, and first see the Lord's burning anger. Our passage begins with the words, now the people complained. Yeah, the Old Testament isn't relevant at all, is it? No, because God's people never complain. (laughs) Could we not do an entire sermon just on the first four words of this passage? about how God's people complain. We would all relate to that, and in fact, there would be many times that we would be quite entertained by it. But God's word offers so much more. And we really can't be too hard on the Israelites because I would complain too. And there are legitimate hardships that they are facing. The people are out in the desert. They're out in the wilderness, not sure that they're really gonna make it to where they're going, and it is a tough life. But the hardships are not the problem. The hardships reveal the heart problem. It's not the hardships, but the heartships, right? The situations, the circumstances of life are not the problem, they reveal the heart problem. God has evidenced himself, being an awesome God who dwells amidst them. They are encouraged to approach God through the mediation of the priests. They are encouraged to bring requests to God. In New Testament language, Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there's a big difference, a big heart difference between petitioning and complaining. The bad heart turns to complaining, and this brings out the Lord's anger. The fire from the Lord burned among them, the Lord's burning anger, The result of the Lord's burning anger was the people's repentance to a measure. The people suddenly realize that they are wrong and they go to Moses and Moses prays to the Lord on their behalf. Moses prays to the Lord on behalf of the people. He intercedes just as Christ intercedes for us. The Lord's anger still burns against our sinful complaining. But the good news is that the Lord poured out his righteous wrath upon Jesus, so that in Christ, we can repent, we can lament, we can bring prayers and petitions of all kinds, and we can present those requests to God, knowing that Jesus intercedes on our behalf. And so we're not just supposed to say, oh, these were Israelites, I'm just like them, this is so relevant. 
and stay like them. We are to learn from them and to realize we don't have to be like them. We can repent and do it differently. Repentance is possible through faith in Christ. And so that takes us to verse 4 and introduces us to a group of people who are simply called the rabble. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. The rabble, who is called the mixed multitude in the King James, were those who had come out of Egypt with Israel. That is to say, they were Egyptians who had seen God's greatness, and so they went with Israel. They have a different point of reference. And so later as they say, oh, we remember how we had all these good things in Egypt at no cost. (laughs) Well, maybe you did, (laughs) but there was quite a cost to us. But from their point of reference, they were Egyptians. Their experience in Egypt was favorable. They had not faced 400 years of slavery as Israel did. Think about that point of perspective when you think about race relations when you think about those who grew up in a very different environment than you. The rabble is sometimes us, who have a different point of reference. In our passage, the rabble were those Egyptians who had been amazed by God, so they left with Israel and became a part of Israel, but they continued to look for God to keep doing amazing things. It's what we often hear in our world when people say, if your God is so great, If your God is so good, why doesn't he do something about all the problems in our world? Well, two thoughts on this for you to contemplate over the next week. First, the rabble is dictating the conversation. They craved other foods, and suddenly the Israelites start wailing with them. In our culture, we have a rabble who dictates the conversation. It's the media. Now, this is not a time for me to point my finger at the media. What I'm pointing at is us for letting the media dictate our conversation, that we listen and talk about what it is we're told to talk about. We talk about whatever it is that the news media, entertainment media, social media, uh, whatever media picks the topic, that's what it is that we're going to talk about. I have no interest in keeping up with the Kardashians. But I keep being told that I'm supposed to. I'm not although the fact that I know that phrase means I have to some extent. There's a level to which I have to keep up with cultural conversation or I appear out of touch, and people certainly care about me being relevant. Students have to watch endless YouTube videos to keep up with what everyone is talking about at school. This news media reports on whatever it decides to report on, and then we're asked to weigh in with our opinions in our workplaces and among our relationships. The problem is that this means we must talk about the problems in our world from the viewpoint of those who are unbelievers. They are asking the question. They frame the discussion. Everyone begins to talk about gun control, whether you're talking about gun rights, gun control, but we do so in the context of the rabble unbelievers who are dictating the terms of the conversation. The Israelites should have responded to the rabble by saying, I'm not sure that I agree with your assessment. I I don't agree with the premise of your question. Let's talk about God's faithfulness for a moment. Let's talk about God's sovereignty and provision. Let's talk about the gospel for a moment. And now let's talk about current situations in the context of the gospel. 
in the context of our great God and his faithfulness, in the context not of unbelief, but of belief. And then the second thought, what we read is the rabble with them began to crave other food. Yes, the rabble is dictating the conversation, but they crave other food. And don't we crave other food also? We don't want school shootings. We don't want hungry kids. We don't want domestic abuse. We don't want human trafficking. We don't want corrupt and polarizing politicians. We don't want war. We don't want substance abuse that ravages our homes and communities. We crave different food too. We want families who are whole and prospering. We want students who are safe and learning. We want companies who are growing and producing. We want governing that represents and leads. The rabble craves other food, but seeks it from a place of unbelief. Christians crave other food, but we pursue it from a place of faith in Christ. And so we need to change the battleground, to change the way the conversation is framed in order to show that strong families, strong schools, strong communities is a fruit of following Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Consider the needs of others ahead of your own. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Submit to your authorities. Pray for those in authority. Authorities provide what is right and fair. These are all commands that are in the context of those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, who have regenerate hearts and display the fruit of the Spirit. We crave different food. In fact, we crave, in many ways, the same food that unbelievers crave. The difference is that we know this food comes from the Lord, and so we look to the Lord. At the Together for the Gospel Conference that took place this past week, Mark Dever said, when Christians live like the world, we provoke no questions and provide no answers. Let me say that again. When Christians live like the world, we provoke no questions and provide no answers. It's okay to crave other food. It's okay that somebody else asks the question, but we reframe it and say, here's a different way of approaching that, that we might actually see that food come from the Lord. And so food coming from the Lord is what verses four through nine is all about. We begin the major sections of the narrative because the complaint is about food, meat and manna, our daily bread. The people are complaining about free food that falls from the sky every day. They say, we never see anything but this manna. And this passage tells us a little bit about uh, what the manna was like. It says it was like coriander seed, looked like resin. And they were able to eat it simply as it was, but they could also grind it uh, and use it to make other things. And it provided all the nutrients that they needed and also tasted good as well. If Ryan McCormick were here, he would talk to you about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Actually, I called Ryan. I said, is it okay if I say that about you? He goes, oh, absolutely, because I do that. And he would tell you that the elves had lembus bread, right? The lembus bread and just a small bite of lembus bread would sustain a person for the whole day. Of course, Pippin could eat four loaves of it, but that lembus bread really was a miraculous food. The manna was a miraculous food. The manna itself is miraculous. 
as is the manner in which it was provided. Daily bread that came down from heaven. Do you ever tire of the miraculous daily bread that the Lord provides? Do you ever tire of the miraculous way in which he delivers it? We are certainly encouraged to bring prayers and petitions to the Lord about our needs and the needs of others. But we bring prayers and petitions with thanksgiving. A genuine thanksgiving for what God is providing is the context for legitimate prayer requests. A thankless heart does not see the hand of the Lord in the ordinary or the extraordinary. And so that takes us to what really is the longest section of this passage, verses 10 through 25, in which we see the burden of leadership. The Lord becomes angry, and so does Moses. Verse 10, the Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you have put the burden of all these people on me? Now, if you are a leader of any kind, you have essentially uttered these words. God, what did I ever do to deserve this? Right? If you're a parent, you have uttered these words, and a parent is a leader of a sort. And so, again, we see this is not an irrelevant Old Testament. It is so much like us. Or how about verse 15? If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. Oh, Lord, just kill me right now. All right? Then they're done that. And yet we again see and are thankful that God pours out his anger on Jesus, that we might then do something different. God provides a solution that is still practiced today, the plurality of leadership. Verse 16, he says uh, to tell the people, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. And here we have the session of the first Presbyterian Israelite church of the wilderness. <laughs> now verses 18 through 20 is probably one of my favorite parts of all of scripture, where God essentially says, you want meat? You want meat? Oh, I'm gonna give you meat. I'll give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils. <laughs> I have a close friend who uh, says that when they were younger, uh, they would talk about uh, how much they wanted cake and ice cream and they could just, they could eat the whole cake by themselves. And so on one occasion, mom said, okay, I wanna see you." And so put down a whole cake and a whole half gallon of ice cream and said, let's see you do it. <laughs> to this day, he can't eat that same kind of cake or eat that same kind of ice cream. Every time he looks at it, he gets sick just thinking about it. Too much even of a good thing, he gets sick of it, right? But we see that the Lord provides and the Lord can provide whatever is we need. And it's okay to ask for good things, but to do so in thankfulness for what God has already given and an acknowledgement that he can give us these things. Again, I'd love to talk about this more, uh, but it really preaches itself and the kind of thing you can talk about uh, during the week. What, are, what I want to thought kind of in the midst of all this is um, the wonderful moments when there is a concern, but rather than complaining, and rather than people bringing it as a demand, it comes as a suggestion, as an idea, something that somebody has identified and that they are willing to be a part of the solution. We experience hardships, even as a church family. We experience hardships of how to be uh, individual Christians, but also how to, be a, how to be a church with our different personalities and preferences, how to be the church 
in our community, how to be the church in our contemporary culture. And so there are, with these hardships and difficulties, it's important to take moments to vocalize, not to vent, but to vocalize what the concerns are. But then to discern what the root of the concern is with the goal of trying to find the solution. To say, we crave different food. We seek leadership to lead us in this. And representative leadership should listen to the people. But listening to complaining is different than listening to submissive petitions. The Lord isn't opposed to providing meat. The Lord is opposed to complaining in unbelief. As a church family, we're not opposed to considering how we do things. It's just that we say, how is the Lord leading us to do these things? Not with demands of unbelief, do it my way or else, but to say, what is the Lord calling us to do? And together to seek the Lord in those things. Again, lots more that could be said about that, but I want to hit on a couple of particulars here. In verses 26 through 30, we, we hear about a couple of particular people, Eldad and Medad, in the midst of this spirit that has been uh, put on the elders in order that all the elders are prophesying, and these two, for whatever reason, had not uh, joined the rest of the elders at the tent, and yet they were prophesying as well. And Joshua thought that that was inappropriate, and Moses, I love his reply, are you jealous for my sake? In verse 29, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord put, put his spirit on them. If they're not against us, they're for us, as Jesus said. One of the things that we take from this is how important it is for us to work well with other Christians and other churches, at least churches that are true churches and aren't heretical churches. We officially, as uh, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, we have officially what we call fraternal relationships with other NAPARC churches, North American Presbyterian and Reformed churches, because we agree on almost everything. Uh, in terms of, uh, we agree that the Bible is the Bible. Uh, we have the Westminster Standards, and so uh, we really have great agreement. And so there's a, a way in which we can operate together. We also have a communal relationship that we welcome to the communion table all those who are part of evangelical churches. That is, churches that believe the gospel, that believe the Bible, that believe the essentials of the faith. And we don't really have a relationship with the mainline church or other bodies that have abandoned the gospel and the word of God and cannot be considered a true church, even if there are true Christians amidst them. All of which is to say we are glad for those who rightly speak God's truth. We are glad for other true churches that are flourishing. Moses says, are you jealous for my sake? We need not be threatened by churches who rightly proclaim God's word. I'm friends with several pastors in our community. We pray with each other and we pray for each other. There are pastors in our community that regularly pray for the success of Westminster. They want Westminster to flourish. And we certainly don't want to steal sheep from other people, just as we don't want to see people from our congregation go to others. And yet if someone leaves one church for another... And the kinds of reasons that people do this, they ordinarily become nothing but trouble for the church they go to. And as pastors, we talk about that. Oh yeah, they're coming to my church now. Thanks a lot for that. If they were unwilling to humble themselves in one community of believers, what makes you think they're gonna do it in the next church they go to? When I pastored in Kerwinsville, there were four independent Baptist churches that had all been started by the same group of people. 
They weren't church planters, they were legalists. And they would start a church and they would call a pastor who was supposed to do everything that they told him to do. But then other people would start to come to the church. And pretty soon, this legalistic group became a minority and were getting outvoted in the church that they had begun. And so they would leave the church they started and they would start another church. And by the time I left, they were onto their fifth church and they left behind four churches that were now preaching the gospel as they started another one that was gonna preach the law. And we rejoiced in the four churches that were left behind that were wonderful churches that were growing and flourishing and proclaiming God's word and celebrated those things. And yet we never saw repentance in that one group of people. So we rejoice whether it's right to rejoice uh, with others who are rightly preaching God's word. Now it turns to the, the final section and really briefly on this uh, is we ultimately see how it is that God feeds not just the 5,000, but a whole lot more. And we uh, heard it echoed earlier this morning from John 6. Um, and, and in our affirmation of faith, we talk about God's providence, that here is a, that God causes a wind that drives the quail in from the sea. In some cases, that's ordinary. A wind blows and the quail go where the wind directs them. First cause, secondary causes. It really is the ordinary providence. What makes it extraordinary is that God is the one who directs those things, causes those things. All the things that happen in our life, God has ordained and caused. Some of those we look at and go, yeah, seems pretty ordinary, but God caused that. Other times it's extraordinary You go, wow, God caused that. Sometimes the providence is what we call a frowning providence because it's not what we would want. It's difficult. And yet we say, God who is good has ordained this. Let me follow faithfully. We're glad for the smiling providence when God does something ordinary or extraordinary in our life that brings us great rejoicing. Again, throughout this week, consider God's frowning providence, his uh, good providence, uh, how it is that God continues to sustain and bless us in all things that he uh, does not have a short arm, but can do all things so that we can rejoice in what we ought to rejoice in and to do it as a community of faith together, that the truth might indeed set us free. Amen.